30 years ago, more than half a million people filled Moscow's Tushina airfield to see Pantera, the Black Crows, Metallica, and ACDC. The concert was free, and the booze was free-flowing. Technically, it wasn't for sale, but it was there. Between the massive crowd, the crush at the stage, and a mix of cops and soldiers who were there to keep the peace, there was fighting, there was shoving, and there was glass flying through the air. Moscow's September 1991 Monsters of Rock was a hell of a music festival. The whole show came together with lightning speed, too, all in just three weeks, about ten times faster than it usually took to organize in Europe. But this was the Soviet Union, and the West music industry wanted to celebrate the defeat of the August coup that nearly erased the apparent progress made under Perestroika. One of Medusa's own editors, a guy named Valeri, was there, and he says the risk of being trampled reminded him of the 1896 Kadinka tragedy, when more than 1,200 people were stampeded to death during the festivities after the coronation of Nicholas II, Russia's last Tsar. Amazingly and miraculously, nobody died at Moscow's Monsters of Rock. But Valeri didn't stay for ACDC, which is a tragedy all its own. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. Our main story this week isn't the 30th anniversary of Moscow's Monsters of Rock, but we did manage this week to publish an English language translation of our story on that music festival, and I had to share a bit of what I learned from that article, because the whole thing sounds so wild. Also, I've been listening to It's a Long Way to the Top by ACDC all this week, and I'd play it for you now but the royalties are not in Medusa's podcasting budget. So instead, today we're focusing on Russia's place in the European gas crisis. Wow, didn't see that one coming, did you? And we're going to be leaning on expert insights from Nick Trickett, a political analyst who specializes in energy consulting. Listeners of the show are aware, probably, I assume. Listeners of the show can assume, <laughs> correctly, that I don't know much about macroeconomics. But the energy crisis strikes me as a particularly important issue. And Nick writes an absolutely fantastic newsletter called OGs and OFZs. So I lean on him for all the heavy lifting. But first, let's revisit a few of the other things that happened in Russia this week. If you live in Russia, or if you're a weirdo like me who reads the Russian news regularly, one thing you'll notice about the politically salient stories in Moscow is how often... They involve the police. For Medusa's daily newsletter, I use emojis. I write the newsletter and I use emojis to identify the general themes of the various stories that we're covering on any particular day. And I swear, I'm in certain little police emojis all the damn time, one after another. So let's check in with the cops. A couple of years ago, there was a movie called Mr. Jones that was co-produced with money from Ukraine, Poland, and the UK about Gareth Jones, the Welsh journalist who was the first Westerner to report direct evidence of a famine in Soviet Ukraine in 1932 and 1933. What do you want? The story no one is talking about. I saw him, four bullets in his back. 
And you don't think it was a robbery? What was Paul working on? Ukraine. Soviet Union is not the workers' paradise that was promised. It is not the great experiment that you read about in the press. An English actor named James Norton plays the titular character. I confess that I don't know his work. He's a handsome guy. And his co-stars are also handsome people. Vanessa Kirby. You might know her from blockbuster movies like Mission Impossible Fallout. She was in Hobbs and Shaw. And Peter Sarsgaard, who's been in a million films. Boys Don't Cry, Jarhead. He was even in Green Lantern. Maybe you remember that one. It wasn't very good. I haven't seen Mr. Jones, but apparently it is good. It has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the critical consensus calls it flawed, yet fundamentally worthy. So that sounds good. In Ukrainian, by the way, the movie is actually titled The Price of Truth, which gives you a better sense of the existential themes present in the picture. Now, on October 14th, 2021, we're talking two years after the movie comes out, the human rights group Memorial decided to screen Mr. Jones at its Moscow office. But things didn't go quite as planned. Just after the movie started, several dozen young men in hoodies and masks broke into the screening room and interrupted the film. They assembled at the front and they chanted the slogan, We don't forget and we don't forgive. And they also screamed the words disgrace and fascist. Some people in the audience later told Medusa that they thought at first that they might be getting taken hostage by terrorists. And it's not all that hard to imagine why they maybe thought that. Now, I've looked around, and I haven't found any clear explanation for why these guys were yelling exactly this stuff, but I assume it's because they reject anything depicting the Soviet famine as a policy that specifically targeted Ukraine. And they associate this narrative with the Ukrainian nationalists who later collaborated with the Nazis, the fascists. At least that's what I think the logic is here, okay? So these youngsters are standing around, they're hooting and hollering. So naturally, Memorial, they call the police. Now, the nearest police station is just around the corner, apparently. It's about a five-minute walk from the office. The cops don't show up for 20 minutes, though, by which point all but three of the hooligans have managed to run away. Oh, well, right? Not so bad. A small disruption, but now the group should be able to get back to its little movie, right? Yes? No. The police then proceeded to question everybody in attendance, forcing them to complete incident reports and explain how they themselves ended up at this film screening. Eventually, the organizers managed to turn the movie back on and finish showing it, but the cops didn't leave the building until around 2 a.m. They also refused to let anyone telephone Memorial's lawyer, and the attorney only managed to reach the group by literally crawling in through an unguarded open window. I haven't seen any pictures of that, but I imagine it was quite a sight. Now, after several hours of threatening to seize... Memorial's computer equipment on the grounds that it might contain evidence related to the break-in. The officers reportedly got a mysterious phone call, and then they immediately softened up. Their disposition changed, an eyewitness told Medusa. It's unclear who these hooligans were, but the three men who ended up in police custody appear to have been released without any charges. Some at Memorial believe that the men were officers themselves, while Medusa reported that they're likely activists from youth groups affiliated either with the United Russia political party or perhaps Moscow Mayor Sergei Sibyanin's office. Both of these youth groups have a history of crashing events and protests, apparently in order to justify more aggressive police responses, which is what happened with the Mr. Jones screening. So that little incident didn't lead to any arrests, but since we're talking about the cops, there is 
a fraud investigation into former Deputy Education Minister Marina Rakova, and that led to another high-profile arrest on Tuesday, October 12th, the arrest of Sergei Zuyev, the rector of the Moscow School for the Social and Economic Sciences. This university is called Shinenka. And he's supposedly wrapped up in Rakova's alleged scheme. Medusa learned that the entire case is apparently based on an examination prepared by the Russian Academy of Education that looks into state contracts that Rakova allegedly failed to fulfill. The thing about the Russian Academy of Education, you need to understand, is that it's run by a woman named Olga Vasilyeva, who happens to be Marina Rakova's former boss. And the two had a bit of a falling out, which means that there could be a little bit of a conflict of interest at play here. We don't know, but the cops have been happy to roll with the expertise that Vasilyeva's group has offered against Rakova, and now Zoyev's going to have to wait it out under house arrest. And his university says that they're apparently already looking for a temporary replacement. We'll see what happens with him. Alexei Nechayev, the head of the New People Party, which just joined the State Duma this week, actually defended him in remarks on the parliament floor, characterizing Zoyev as one of Russia's most distinguished public servants who truly loves education. Nice stuff, right? Friendly. Apparently, they've known each other for more than a dozen years, so it should be interesting to see if Zuyev's friends in the legislature and Moscow's academia might be able to spare him a criminal conviction, although he would probably be even better off if his friends were in the Moscow Police Department. We're only three episodes deep into The Naked Pravda's second season. That's what you're listening to right now. But one segment I've revisited each time so far is a review of all the stories of the week involving censored speech and ordinary civic activity that's apparently off-limits in Russia. This week we learned about new things that you can't do in education and stand-up comedy. When my daughter was about seven years old, she nearly broke my heart when she declared, I will never have kids. I knew, of course, that it's probably for the best not to be over-eager for children at such a young age, even if somebody does eventually decide to become a parent. I also knew that her apprehensions about motherhood might have something to do with the fact that I had just shown her medical footage on YouTube of a live vaginal birth. Amniotic fluid, blood, and the umbilical cord all splashing around all over the place. In retrospect, maybe it wasn't the best thing to show a small girl trying to wrap her head around how babies are born. I don't know. But I do know that talking to children about sex can be tricky, which is why work by people like Olga Shogoleva, until recently a biology teacher, is so useful. In addition to teaching at the St. Petersburg State Conservatory, Olga is also involved in multiple sex ed programs, including one that teaches parents how to talk to their kids about the birds and the bees, presumably without confusing metaphors about birds or bees. This week, Olga lost her job after some of the more prudish parents complained about her Instagram account, where she posts content about anatomy, sexuality, and, you know, related themes. When the school's administrators asked her to censor her blog, first they wanted a few posts deleted, and then they wanted the entire account disabled, Olga refused. And then she was told that it would be best if she just quit. When some of Olga's students petitioned to keep her at the school, and other parents defended her, the principal actually asked her to stay. But Olga says that the administration still couldn't resolve the conflict with the more conservative parents. So she doesn't actually want the job back. Her Instagram page is now hidden to non-subscribers behind a privacy wall. 
teaching kids about reproduction by day and Instagramming videos by night about contraceptives and sex toys. You can't do that. You're listening to Ariana Lalayeva, a comedian from North Ossetia, apologizing for being part of a joke told more than a year ago where her comedy partner said during their stand-up routine that she has Ossetian pie with shredded meat between her thighs. It's a joke about vaginas, folks. You may have heard of them. Some people think it's offensive to talk about them or to compare them to pies. This one was particularly offensive in North Ossetia, it seems, not so much because female genitalia are so special, but because Ossetian pie is associated with a local religious rite, where the three pies symbolize God, the sun, and the earth. I assume the sensitivity there has to do with the first thing, and not the latter two. When footage of that joke belatedly started circulating online last weekend, both Lalayeva and her comedian partner issued apologies on Instagram. Three days later, Lalayeva posted a second apology, the one I just played for you. This time she was in tears, and she indicated that someone had given her a serious talking to, and she said that she now understands the full scale of the tragedy and the level of colossal damage inflicted on everyone who saw the joke. She also revealed that she's lost her job and many of her friends, and she said she doesn't want to be an enemy of the people. Vaginas, pies, God. Don't joke about them in North Ossetia, guys. You can't do that. Our main story this week is Europe's energy crisis and Moscow's gas supplies. I go cross-eyed when I try to talk about these issues, but luckily, political risk analyst Nick Trickett, the brain behind the terrific OGs and OFZs newsletter, agreed to join us and answer some broad questions. If you've glanced at any headlines about Russian gas in Europe this week, you've likely seen allegations that old Russia is up to its tricks again wielding its natural resources as a geopolitical weapon, sticking it to the poor Europeans who are just trying to stay warm. Darn it. You may be shocked to hear this, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Has Russia contributed to Europe's energy crisis and it's, and the, 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 has it forced gas prices higher by declining to supply additional gas to Europe? These are the allegations that I've been seeing in the, in the news. Is this all a big ploy to force the Europeans to say, okay, okay, Nord Stream 2, we need it, we love it, give it, give it, give it to us, please. So in a word, no, I, I would say that, that Russia has definitely, con- literally, literally speaking, contributed to it because obviously Gazprom retains the ability to produce more and, and can agree to export more. But the basic, the basic problem is that for about 15 years, you know, going back to the mid 2000s, the EU was trying to get Gazprom to play by market rules. And, and the gas cutoffs, obviously, in, in 06 and 09, led to a, a kind of sweeping review of energy market regulations and so on between EU member states. And in 2018, the European Commission finally you know, got Gazprom to agree to play by the rules they wanted by threatening a massive antitrust action that had dragged out for you know, some years. And Gazprom finally said, fine, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be a market player. The problem now, of course, is that when there's a shortfall, you know, European importers don't want a market player. They want someone who will play the role of what will be called a swing supplier. So somebody who can, you know, increase or decrease production to kind of account for any changes in demand. And swing suppliers are ultimately political roles. You know, like it's, a, it's, a, it's ultimately a political decision and not a market decision. So I would say the basic situation now is you have this mismatch where the EU has wanted 
Russia to play by the, by market rules. And Russia's like, fine, we're doing that now. And so, you know, for instance, it's been an ongoing problem this year with Gazprom's refused to export more by Ukraine in part because the Ukrainian pipeline operator, the GTSOU, has basically refused to offer them uninterrupted capacity, meaning that they, they're only offering them interruptible capacity. So, so another supplier could theoretically book that capacity in the pipeline and take it from Gazprom. And they're doing so without offering them the usual discount that you would give a company when they don't have certainty that they can use that, you know, that route. And, you know, and another problem is that, you know, Gazprom is still meeting all of its contractual obligations. So the problem is that if, if once you move to a system where you're, you're asking companies to basically sell gas in the hopes that someone on any given day will buy it, you know, that there's no actual contractual obligation to sell more gas. So, you know, some of that's gamesmanship because obviously there's a, a political component to this. You know, Gazprom has, for instance, signed a supply deal with Hungary that's intended to basically screw Ukraine out of being able to use a pipeline, backflow pipeline to kind of re-import gas from other parts of the EU. But the, the bigger point is that, you know, there, there is no contractual obligation to sell more volumes of gas they have. So it's, it's it, 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 strictly speaking, it's they're, they're not like at fault in any legal sense and so on. And it's not really, and like they're really being asked to play a role that they were being told not to play for a long time. Is Gazprom declining available profits or is Europe asking them to take some kind of a loss in either the long run or the medium run? Or- I, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that they're, they're declining profits. If you, if you think of it this way, I mean, they obviously benefit from the surge in prices, strictly speaking. So, you know, if, if you were to, if you were to like try to model it, there would be a, a point at which in, increase in exports would, would actually offset the additional gains and profits from the current level of prices. But I think the better way to think about it is what their priorities are um, and why the, the shortfall exists in the way that it does. You know, it's not, it's not that Russia just tried to cut off supply and that's why there's a shortfall, you know, like back in August, for instance, there were a lot of like very, very political theories about why that was happening. The basic story was a bit simpler. Last winter was a lot colder than, or not a lot, but colder than usual. The, the summer was cooler than usual. So that means you have a lot less natural gas and storage across Europe, including in Russia. Because obviously if it's colder in Western Europe, it's colder in Russia. There happened to be a fire back in August at a major field. So that obviously interrupted production for a bit and they finally got back on. But now, you know, the, the issue is that Russia has to ultimately prioritize domestic storage. So if it's going to be a cold winter in Europe everywhere, Russia is definitely going to have to store more domestically. And also over the summer, for instance, ironically, because of higher temperatures and how hot it got, electricity prices in Russia actually reached historic highs because how many people were using air conditioning and so on. And, and even though it's not like a huge chunk, there's still a sizable chunk of, of the energy grid in Russia that's powered by natural gas. So, so there are a lot of other factors at play. So it's, it's easy to say that Russia could sell more and it could strictly sell more and I think alleviate the stress. But it's not responsible at all for like the uh, the overall structural dynamics they're playing out. Do you think that Europe w- is is taking the right lessons here? Like, are, are they? I imagine there are people in Europe. You're a person in Europe who's drawing these conclusions. Obviously, I'm in, I'm in the UK, so it's, it's not good. Oh, excuse me. Jeez, I can't, I, you're right. But I mean, do do you think that that this this energy crisis, the current the current gas crisis, can we call it a crisis? Yeah, I, I would say it's a crisis. Is it occasioning a reevaluation? for Europeans of their their place either in the energy market or spe- I guess spe- specifically with Russia are they kind of rethinking their relationship to Russia and realizing that for all the human rights issues and political regime dif- differences they're kind of in this together <laughs> with Russia and is that is that leading anybody you think to think well maybe we should we should all just kind of smooth things over, eh? I, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I mean, first off, you have the the fact that 
the, the kind of like, like leading EU institutions, right? Not, not national institutions, but like EU, EU level institutions have basically used the crisis as an excuse to say, well, we got to invest more in renewables. Now, Russia would argue that renewables are the reason it's happening. It's not quite true. There's some truth to it because obviously, you know, when you build like a, a windmill, you know, like a turbine or whatever, or, you know, or a, a solar, a solar panel, et cetera, like, you know, the output varies, right? You can't predict if there's going to be wind or not or sun or not. And so the real problem is what do you do when there's a surge of output or a surge of demand, which is what we've seen this year because of reopenings and in in, in economies across the globe. What I've seen more is actually just the reconsideration of nuclear, right? So France, for instance, is doubling down again on nuclear. You, you have the kind of coalition of Eastern European states that want nuclear power to replace coal that have now have an interest to work with France. Even, that includes, unfortunately, Hungary and Poland. So that gets, it gets a bit complicated politically. But to work with France to try to convince Germany to build more nuclear again, you know, because Germany decided to phase it out after Fukushima, stupidly, but they, they decided that. The problem there, of course, is that nuclear is, a, is really good as like a base load, right? It provides a steady amount of energy, but it's not really designed to fluctuate or move up um, when you have a shortfall elsewhere. So it doesn't alone fix the problem. Like the UK, for instance, now has a plan to replace all fossil fuel um, energy with nuclear by 2035. It, Boris Johnson said it, so it's probably BS. But the larger point is I do think that there's a reconsideration happening, but it's not, you know, it's not let's let's keep buying Russian gas or sign more long-term contracts like Gazprom or, or, the, or the Kremlin would prefer. It's it's more like how do we keep push, leading into what we're doing or pushing through what we're doing and find a way to make it work. Now, there's a lot of skepticism of, that it's possible and there are a lot of problems with that approach, but I, I tend to be more optimistic that, you know, maybe in the next couple of years will be rough, but by 2023, 2024, um, we'll probably start seeing some gains that we might not expect right now. If you read Nick's newsletter, one subject he returns to regularly is inflation. It's something with more political salience than many observers and Russia experts seem to appreciate. So I asked him why inflation is so important in Russia and what role it plays in gas exports to Europe during an energy crisis like the one that's happening right now. If you look at social surveys, usually Levada is the leading one. Basically, the biggest issue that Russians say they face any given year is price increases. And it's, it's, I, I think it had, a lot of it is ultimately historical. It's like a memory of the 80s and 90s when inflation was very, very high. But, but basically, you know, consumers are always worried about price stability in Russia because it's, it's, it's been relatively unstable for many of them for a long time, though it's obviously gotten more stable in recent years. The problem being, of course, that, you know, lower inflation in Russia, you know, correlates with no growth or stagnant growth. So, you know, so, so as a result, well, you, you get this kind of weird situation where, you know, you, you would you would expect to see more inflation when growth increases because there's simply an expansion of activity. So prices are being bid up by people trying to get more resources to make things, buy things, whatever, consume things. But the system that they've kind of built economically is such that the second they kind of cross the their their inflation target threshold, which the central bank is set at four percent, there's a bit of panic about what to do. And so the kind of in, the the default response is to try to find a way to to quash inflation, which tends to destroy demand, which then destroys growth. So you have this kind of Ouroboros-style cycle, fighting inflation to, to create stability, but that stability then creates price instability because they're not investing enough into new production. Because, you know, it, it, as we see from the, the case of natural gas, a supply bottleneck from like five years ago can create an inflationary effect way down the road where prices suddenly surge. How do higher gas prices and, you know, like windfall earnings for Gazprom lead to domestic price increases in Russia? 
how does expensive gas that's presumably earning all this money for gas production, how does it end up hurting ordinary Russians? It doesn't necessarily have to increase inflation, but but it's, I think it's important to note that there's no plan at, at the present to to kind of redistribute those windfall earnings amongst the people. So it's not like it's going to households in the form of you know payments or something. And at the same time, you know, there, there's already existing plans to to index electric electricity tariffs by five percent in the next couple of years, which is one percent above inflation, regardless of the of the context for incomes or what growth looks like. So they're, they're trying to they're basically trying to protect the profits of the power companies who they need to invest into efficiency and new new plants, whatever. And to top it off, you know, natural gas is basically the the most important feedstock, the kind of input you use to make fertilizer. So whenever, you know, a fertilizer producer needs to get more feedstock and let, let's say they have to, you know, they have to buy it, like th- there's a relationship between the export price and domestic prices. It's not necessarily always strong because in, in Russia, they're fairly regulated, um, even though there's still obviously mar- a market mechanism that, that might determine it on a daily basis. But, but the effect is that it bids up the price for fertilizer. And then once when fertilizer prices rise and suddenly, you know, the agricultural sector is paying more for, for production and then suddenly, you know, harvest might decline. And which is already like happening, like like some some producers, for instance, with beets, to use a, a prominent example, are warning that basically the cost of fertilizer is going to force them to have to produce less next year. And then if they produce less, that obviously leads to price inflation for that good. So that's like one example. The the way that I look at it is basically that the only way that windfall ends up being a net benefit for the Russian economy overall is if it gets redistributed in some form, or or else it leads to some. You no know, large increase of investment for Gazprom. That's not going to happen because Gazprom doesn't really need that much more productive capacity. It, it, I mean, they could theoretically increase production a lot, what it has already. And even if it did do that, it would mostly be going to pipeline contractors and friends of the regime, you know, that are able to, to massively elevate their their costs. As, as, as there's a famous analyst note from uh, unfortunately laid off employee Alex Fock, who was working on I want to say Sverdov Sverbank, analyzing Gazprom specifically, and he actually showed that like. On a financial basis, the company always chose the most expensive routes for pipelines domestically. <laughs> when they have international partners building international territory, they are much more cost efficient. So, but so it, it, but anyway, so yeah, so so the windfall has to be distributed to people somehow. I personally, I tend to be somebody who believes that they could do that without risking inflate a uh, high, higher, much higher inflation, but they don't like doing that. Or else it has to be transferred to industries that are making things. And the problem, of course, ne- there is that. If they if they simply give the money to like a manufacturer for cars or you know or some consumer good, people have to be able to afford it to have that actually have a meaningful impact. So it, it's kind of a problem where the, the 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 obsessive focus on let's build factories to make things and ideally sell them abroad kind of hits a dead end because eventually people domestically have to consume the stuff. And so until they find a way to better redistribute these windfalls whenever they form from different sectors, that doesn't really go anywhere. And, and, and it's not just, you know, like the energy sector, like if you look at gross profits from, from corporations as a share of GDP based on like raw stats, you know, actual estimates, essentially the levels you see today uh, amid, you know, massive state intervention are as high as they were during the worst of the oligarchs in the 90s. And they were actually lower between 2000 and about 2011 when there had been appreciable gains for, for incomes and so on. And then when Putin comes back to power in 2012, they surge back up like another, another like six to eight percent all of a sudden in a, in a year. So there is clearly a way in which the lack of competition and kind of over concentration of, of cash based in corporate hands without having people able to consume enough stuff domestically is a problem. And like high gas prices don't really fix that unless they're redistributed. Mm-hmm. 
You've been listening to the Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard about Russia's role in Europe's energy crisis from political risk analyst Nick Trickett, the author of the OGs and OFZs newsletter. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, either in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io slash en if you want the English text to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but uh, we'll take whatever you can spare, naturally. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.